and gentlemen. Uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch Dispatch Media. Um, and uh, it's been a bad morning. I, I, if you follow me on Twitter, you probably know. Um, in fact, where are you going, Zoe? Zoe just walked out of the room when I started talking about it. Um, I uh, had to bring uh, Pippa, the English Springer Spaniel, to the vet, and uh, she's going to get a bunch of tests to see if, in fact, surgery is warranted or if there's some other thing going on. Uh, we had we got a second opinion, and the second opinion was that her problem may be more systemic, but it could be also tick-borne and therefore may be treatable medically or who knows. Um, and anyway, we didn't want to have, you know, do surgery, which is awful, um, which would give her a permanent limp if it wasn't absolutely necessary and, you know, actually fix the problem. So she's back in for more tests, but Pippa hates the vet more than any dog I've ever had. And I've never had a dog that liked the vet, but like she, Zoe, come on, go, go. Um, she, uh, she just starts to cry and whimper and shiver. And, um, hold on. I'm going to Zoe. Zoe, I'm putting you out. Come on, go. Sorry about that. I don't know if we'll keep that or not, but, um, uh, Zoe was getting needy and schnozzling my arm while I was trying to talk. Um, anyway, so Pip was there. She freaked out. She started crying. She got all up in my lap and wouldn't leave. And, her being upset got Zoe upset. So I was basically sitting there in the car with two dogs demanding all of my attention, waiting for a tech to come out and take one of them away. It was, a, it was unpleasant. And I, I don't think anyone is shocked at this point to know that I'm a, just a big softy about this kind of stuff. Um, all right, but enough about the dogs. Cause some people for reasons that baffled me, don't want to hear about dogs. Um, what else? So, you know, one of the things in news yesterday was like all but nine Republicans voted to deny um, uh, uh, a contempt charge against against Steve Bannon for you know his for re- his refusal to deal with a you know to su- respond to a subpoena. Um, I've been looking. I've been actually actively looking to see if there is any actual principled argument um no matter how far-fetched that makes any sense to me on why you would deny uh why you why you would vote that way and i really i I can't think of one can't find one um it is um ludicrous in every regard and you know it's it's going you know like as you know as you guys know i am a big you know, uh, obsessive about how Congress has gelded itself and doesn't know how to be Congress anymore. It's sort of like, you know, like, um, people who keep wild animals from birth, you know, in their, um, on their property and they raise them, you know, raise tigers or chimpanzees or elephants or whatever in captivity. And then someone tries to just let them free in the wild and the poor things don't know how to be wild animals anymore. Um, 
that's sort of what Congress has become in the sense that they just don't know how to be the institution they were intended to be. Um, I'm not sure it's, I'm not sure it's true of all 435 members, but it's true of a huge chunk of them. Um, I remember making the point on special report a couple of weeks ago about the, um, you know, how all, you know, everyone was saying, oh, this is great. This haggling about the infrastructure bill, this back and forth, um, you know, this is what the process looks like. This is, you know, this is getting back to, you know, the way, you know, legislation is done. And I made the point, well, no, it's not. It's, it's just vaguely looks like the, the kind of dysfunction we had 10 years ago. It's not how it's supposed to be done. You know, this stuff is supposed to come up through committees. I mean, I, I wrote about this not long ago. I think I talked about it on here. I don't know. Um, you know, the way you do legislation is you, you find a problem, you bring it to the attention of local officials, the local officials talk to their congressmen and all that kind of stuff. Congressman writes a bill or, or makes a proposal to write a bill and they debate it in committee. They bring in witnesses who talk about it, who say, no, this really isn't a problem or no, this really is a problem or really the, this is a problem, but it's this other thing that is the cause of this problem. And they kick it around and they talk about whether that it's worth spending the money required to fix it. And then it goes out of, and presumably if they win those arguments, it goes out of committee and at some point it goes onto the floor and it's, it's debated and it's, it's haggled over between the appropriations people and the commerce department, blah, blah, all this kind of stuff. Right. What we have now with the way infrastructure works is, um, you have the speaker's office basically writing legislation, um, and then delivering it to like, like Moses down from the mountain, delivering the legislation to the people, to the, to the car, the democratic caucus and saying, this is what you're voting, voting yes on. And Nancy Pelosi has been honest about this. Uh, Paul Ryan did this too. And, uh, you know, it happened under Boehner and it goes, it goes back, but that's not how it's supposed to work. The speaker's office historically doesn't write the legislation and just present it as a fait accompli, uh, to the, you know, the majority. Um, this stuff is supposed to be haggled up from, from below. And, um, but most people just don't know how to do that anymore and it's in the, the congressional leadership thinks it would be stupid or naive of them to sort of let go of the power that they have and so you know most of these people don't know how to be legislators but even with that the idea that congress that a member of congress even if you disagree with the january 6th committee even if you or commission whatever it's called um, even if you think January, the January 6th stuff is overblown, I don't, but, um, you know, the idea that a non white house staffer, a member of a sort of the kitchen cabinet can defy, um, a subpoena from Congress, um, without Congress getting mad about it, it's just a total abdication of the role of being a representative and you know what's her face uh, is it nancy mace um you know she at least you know she voted yes and because she says she wants to have subpoena power when the republicans take back the majority and that's a perfect that's you know it, it's not the reason i would hold bannon in contempt i hold bannon in contempt because he's a lugubrious you know reptilian hoofed um bat-winged 
jackass who tried to steal an election and is thinks that fomenting literally fomenting revolution in his own words um is really cool and nifty um and but you know in, in this context you hold him in contempt because he's he's refusing a, a, a legitimate congressional subpoena and um and you know th- this is and this this raises this other thing that just sort of drives me crazy about it about this whole stuff i listened to the advisory opinions podcast um our boutique legal podcast and um it was very helpful on this executive privilege stuff um and you know explaining how basically executive privilege is really kind of a made-up thing i don't mean that it doesn't exist i mean like the 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 law the precedents um the 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 rules for it um have been made up sort of ad hoc since uh mostly since watergate you know although obviously it goes back to um actually goes back to george washington i wrote an explainer about where it comes from once or during the um i think the first impeachment for the dispatch um maybe we'll find it and put it in the show notes um it came, you know with washington the reason why executive the, the place where executive privilege starts is that um i think it was during the is the j affair the same thing as the xyz affair i can't remember right now but um you know the one of those very 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 early american history ap scandals that plagued the washington administration um i think it was the the i think that i think they're the same thing um Anyway, there were ambassadors getting bribed. It was bad, or at least there were allegations of it, you know, blah, 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 blah. And in Congress, um, everyone in Congress was, was getting their dresses over their heads and the House subpoenaed or demanded uh, certain papers and correspondence from George Washington who um, said, nope, not giving them to you. Um, because it was the house. He said he'd give them to the Senate <laughs> because the Senate has an advise and consent role for am- ambassadorial appointments. And that's that he deemed legitimate, but the house doesn't have a right to those kinds of documents. Um, cause he has a right to keep them, you know, keep his, his secret documents secret. But he said, of course, in an impeachment, he, the Congress would have all the right to take whatever they wanted because uh, there is no executive privilege against impeachment. And, um, which I thought was a very important point during the first Trump impeachment because they were claiming executive privilege all over the place. Um, and the house by my lights has every right to take any documents at once during an impeachment proceeding. Um, I think one of the reasons why this January 6th commission is so ass backwards is that, this is the kind of commission that should have been set up and done for the first impeachment uh, or done for the second impeachment for, you know, what Trump did, um, um, back in January, but Nancy Pelosi wanted to do it on the cheap. Republicans didn't want to do it at all. And they just wanted to get it over with. Um, and so they didn't form com- investigatory committees. They didn't, you know, launch these kinds of they didn't issue these kinds of subpoenas and demand witnesses which is what they should have done during the final days of trump's presidency and my argument as with the first impeachment is is that executive privilege is is a largely bogus thing 
during an impeachment proceeding. But particularly with the Steve Bannon thing, I know I keep walking away from Steve Bannon like, you know, um, you know, somebody's bothering me on a bus and I keep trying to find a new seat, but um or a metaphor that actually works. But um so Bannon is like a podcast host, right? He and he's he's a grifter into some other things as well, but he is he was not a White House advisor. He was not part of the executive branch. And the idea that you can um claim executive privilege because the ex-president says that you um shouldn't cooperate um when the current president says that they're waiving those executive privilege claims. I I I take it from you know the conversation with 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 David and Sarah about how you know a lot of this stuff is not settled law and there are there are some legal cases and precedents in Bannon's favor and all this kind of stuff. But where I just sort of get off the bus as a matter of common sense is um, the idea that you can invoke executive privilege to protect one of the people who is trying to orchestrate uh, mob violence against the Congress in order to prevent the lawful transfer of power um, so the president could essentially, uh, you know, execute an auto coup or a self coup to stay in power. Uh, the idea that that is protected by executive privilege, you know, a guy who goes, there's recordings of the guy saying on, you know, there's transcripts of the guy literally saying, I guess the recordings too, um, saying, you know, go to Washington tomorrow. If you believe in revolution, that's where you gotta be. All hell's going to break loose. Blah, 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 blah. He was part of the organizing effort to get busloads of people, angry people, to do, you know, at least some of that violence. And, um, but even if there hadn't been violence, just the, the, the effort to intimidate Congress out of accepting the legit, certifying the uh, legitimate electors is a friggin' outrage. And like the and again, so the idea that like that Bannon should be allowed to defy Congress because the executive branch was literally part of an a physical assault on the legislative branch in an effort to steal power, and with the exception of nine Republicans, they all voted to not hold this guy in contempt or refer for criminal contempt, whatever the right phrasing is, for defying a subpoena. I mean, like, the Founding Fathers intended for Congress to jealously guard its powers and its prerogatives in the normal course of, like, the legislative process. But, like, the idea that you could unleash a mob on Congress and then try, and then claim, and then the ex-president can claim executive privilege to protect one of the architects of this mob violence that was uh, aimed directly, not figuratively, literally at the House of Representatives is such an embarrassing and shameful, you know, expose of how little these people take their role seriously, how little they even understand their role and how much of everything that they're doing is driven simply by, you know, Kevin McCarthy's 
grand quest to take back the majority. And I get that. And 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 under and I'm entirely in favor of like or dialing resigned to, you know, par- parties playing hardball in with you know in the course of their normal duties, but this thing is just very, very, very different. And um and I watched that 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 new documentary about January sixth on HBO. And how you can watch that and not be furious at these jackasses, um, you know, whether you call it an insurrection or not, I think is a, is, is, is kind of a red herring thing. I think they should stop. Frankly, I think they should stop calling it an insurrection, um, simply because it gives people permission to have a dumb argument about something rather than actually address what, what it obviously and indisputably was, which was a, you know, violent mob action inspired by Donald Trump's lies and to a certain extent directed by at least some of his um, accomplices and aides. And um, that's bad enough. You know, that's all you need to say about it. Um, And, but you watch that thing and it is, it just makes you angry, at least makes me angry all over again. I know there are a lot of people out there who don't get angry about January 6th at all. They only get angry at people who got angry about January 6th, but um, and I guess one of the most striking things about it when you watch it, um, you know, it's, there's so much video of what happened because everybody had their phones out and you know, some people are saying it was like one of the most videotaped, one of the most filmed events, you know, significant events in, in human history. And that may in fact be true when you think about it, um, because it was all so compact and discreet and only happened over, you know the space of what is it four or eight hours or something like that um um but what's interesting to me is and i'm just i'd be surprised if someone isn't trying um what if you wanted to make a pro mob pro trump documentary about that day just what would it look like you know because all the video that you see in 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 that is these is is these fascistic goons, you know, talking about trying to kill cops and hang people and, and take over the government and, um, um, and say threatening and horrible and offensive things to police officers and that kind of stuff. But I'm just kind of curious, like if there is all that video out there and presumably sort of the pro Trump people can get some of that, you know, camera phone stuff from people that they're um uh that 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 are proud of what happened there you know what would a documentary you know on one america news that tried to make it seem like it was a good day um and that these guys were all patriots what would it look like and my hunch is that you'd have to have very little footage if any of the storming of the capitol the beating of the cops with the flagpoles or any of that kind of stuff but it'd be interesting to see someone try and just see how you would make that narrative. And it's funny because this is, this is one of these things I often think about, um, about lots of events about, could you make a movie depicting this or that action? Um, and make what I think are the villains, the heroes. And sometimes you can, you know, sometimes you can make, you know, um, you can certainly make, you know, movies where the the you know the i don't know the iraqis were the 
the, the defenders of their homeland against these invading armies and that kind of stuff. But how close to the facts can you stick um, and still make you know the bad guys good guys or the good guys bad guys? And I often think about this in the context of of the Israel Palestinian stuff, particularly back you know when there was all the, the the suicide bombers and whatnot. And it just seems to me that it is very diff- It would be very difficult to do a true to life, reasonably accurate um, depiction of Palestinian suicide bombers walking into pizza joints and blowing up teenagers and making them into the heroes, making them seem like the good guys. Um, it'd be very difficult to make a movie with, you know, anything like, again, sticking to the facts and seeming like it was, um, loyal to history where you're lobbing indiscriminately lobbing, you know, missiles into playgrounds and whatnot. Um, I'm not saying that you couldn't make a movie that depicts Israelis bad. That I'm sure that's been done a, a million times, but, um, you know, how close to the truth, you know, how far from the truth do you have to get in order to do that? And, um, anyway, so I don't know why I got onto that. Um, and since we're on Bannon kind of sort of, um, I guess I should talk for a second about the new, uh, truth social media thing. Um, I have very little confidence that this thing is going to survive. Um, but maybe it will, you know, uh, if you don't know, Trump has launched a, is launching, um, a, uh, alternative to Twitter because, you know, that's the really the most important thing is that he have an outlet for his social media needs. And it's funny, if you look at the stuff from the deck, you know, the pitch deck, there is, there is almost nothing in there about like revenue or cash flow or any of this kind of stuff. You know, I mean, Steve are having a fun time with this because, you know, we were two journalists who had to put together with some help, you know, um, a deck, you know, basically just as a presentation, like a PowerPoint kind of thing, uh, to raise money to launch the dispatch. And we had lots more stuff about like, you know, you know, profit and loss and revenue streams and projected income. But supposedly this billionaire genius guy, um, with this massive funding for this thing doesn't seem particularly concerned about that, even though it wants to be a publicly traded company. Um, but I think the funniest thing about it is I think it's rule 23. Let me see if you go to truthsocial.com and you look at their terms of service, it says that you may not, disparage tarnish or otherwise harm in our opinion us and or the site um now what i love about this i mean i mean love i mean like i want to you know give it you know flowers and invite it to my condo in port arthur texas love is that you have all of these people out there talking about how big tech censorship is bad. Big tech censorship, you know, is destroying us just this morning. I'll, I'll read it to you because I have that sort of open. 
um, this guy from this clown show thing called American Moment um, tweets out a op-ed by J.D. Vance and Blake Masters um, in the New York Post, and this guy, uh, Sarab Sharma, I think is his name. I don't, apologies if I don't pronounce it correctly, but he's with, uh, he's the president of American Moment and one of these guys that is, you know, one of, one of these new nationalist, uh, you know, Claire monster creatures that, you know, whatever. But anyway, he tweeted this morning, two Kings, JD Vance and Blake masters on one of the existential issues of our time, the chains of corporate slavery under tech oligarchy. Um, first of all, they're not kings. It's not an existential issue. Um, it's not even close to an existential issue. It has. It would have to take two buses and a train to get near an existential issue. And there are no chains of corporate slavery um, at work here. Um, but these guys have spun themselves up into believing an enormous amount of nonsense. Um, you know, it's funny not to get into the whole sort of argumentum ad Hitlerum thing. Um, I'm not saying these guys are fascists, but I will say, I'm not saying that they're not fascists. You know, I've still got to do this big sort of updating of liberal fascism to take account for all of this stuff, um, including a lot of stuff that I was wrong about, but this kind of language about this, you know, corporate slavery, um, under tech oligarchy. That is very similar to the kind of talk that you got in the 1920s from the from the early Nazi movement and in the in the uh, in Italy from the you know early fascist movement. All of you know back then there was the department stores that were considered um, the masters of you know the, the the oligarchs and that kind of thing. Um, in the United States too, a lot of that sort of uh, Father Coughlin social justice movement was against department stores. Um, the reason why department stores were considered so evil, sort of like how, you know, uh, reminiscent a little bit of the Walmart, you know, Costco kind of arguments of today, but different. But um, one of the reasons why department stores were considered so e- evil is that they put out of business a lot of general stores. And general stores, particularly in rural communities, weren't just like hubs for the community in all sorts of good and positive and nice ways. They were also essentially banks for a lot of people where you could buy on credit seed for next year's harvest or supplies for next year's, you know, harvest or supplies for your shop on credit on spec. And then when you brought your finished goods or your crops to market, you pay back, you know, the guy department stores didn't do that kind of layaway, that kind of credit. And they were also much further away from all of these places. So like, the department stores were seen as sort of evil impositions and all the rest. Anyway, uh, the way, you know, if you go back, I, I'm sure it would take me about 10 minutes to find, you know, speeches by um, Hitler and the early, you know, uh, uh, you know, brown shirt types um, about, you know, you know, there was a lot of stuff about interest slavery and corporate slavery and capitalist slavery and all of these kinds of things um, that had nothing to do with actual slavery 
and um, you know, people forget, you know, just because communists were anti-capitalist and anti-business uh, didn't mean that fascists weren't either. Um, but anyway, so the thing that supposedly gets these guys uh, their blood pumping is the censorship on Twitter and Facebook. It makes them very, very, very angry. And sometimes they're right to be angry. Some of the stuff that, you know, the big tech guys do to censor is really bad. Like, um, you know, Amazon taking that book about transgender stuff um, off its virtual shelves, I thought was outrageous, you know. Um, but, you know, a lot of the stuff that Twitter and Facebook bans does not bother me at all because having some, you know, some censorship is necessary. Otherwise, everything would just simply be be porn um but anyway for them censorship is like the the most evil most terrible thing um we must create our own platforms where we don't have censorship um and yet rule 23 of truth media says you cannot disparage tarnish or otherwise harm in our opinion us and or the site so in other words you can't make fun of trump you can't make fun of the site you can't make fun of people Trump likes or people who are working at truth social or whatever. And that's it. That's like, that's the standard for censorship there. And, um, it's amazing to me that like this, this sort of self beclowning hasn't gotten more attention from, you know, the, we must throw off the shackles of corporate slavery and censorship crowd because it it's proven the point. I mean, when parlor or is it parlay? I don't know. And I don't really give a rat's ass when that thing launched, you know, they were going to be the, the super free speech place. And then all of a sudden they were swamped by neo-Nazis and porn. And so they started, you know, censoring people. Um, the stuff is hard, but you know, if you're going to make opposition to censorship, your ne plus ultra or sine qua non or some other fancy Latin phrase, um, you know, having it in your rules of service that you can't say mean things about us um, kind of undermines the whole project. All right, what else? Uh, um, so I'm, I, you know, I've said a zillion times on here that the era of hawkishness with China is, um, is baked into the cake. And the only question is whether or not we're going to have smart hawkishness or dumb hawkishness. And I still believe that, but I got to say, you know, I'm, I'm, I've, I've tried not to be too alarmist about trauma. I'm starting to get kind of alarmist or alarmed. Um, I think the hypersonic missile thing is a big deal. It's a really, really big deal. Um, it, you know, particularly when it's in conjunction with China making all of these sounds and moves about uh, taking back Taiwan. And um, the, you know, you hear every now and then people say, well, it's just saber rattling and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but saber rattling is, is in fact really dangerous. Saber rattling can invite saber rattling from other people. And then all of a sudden you've got, um, you know, what is it? Fred Thompson on the deck of a aircraft carrier saying, you know, this is going to get out of control and people are going to die. Um, you know, most, most bad police shootings come from sort of, uh, heightened tensions where people are, 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 are quick to assume the worst of the other player. Um, 
And so the fact that they're willing to do this kind of saber rattling um, and very serious saber rattling is very worrisome to me. And um, the hypersonic missile, uh, you should really read Klon Kitchen's piece for us explaining it all. But the, the, short, the short version is um, most missiles, most of our sort of big intercontinental ballistic missiles, um, they go up. And then they go down, right? So it's like this parabolic, I guess is what you call the trajectory. It's very predictable. It's interceptable. Um, and the thing about this hypersonic thing is, I gather it goes a, it may not go as fast, but um, which is weird given its name, but it can change its course on the way. And it can also come up, for specific reasons, it can come up, from the south and sort of hit us from in effect from behind where almost all of our anti-missile stuff has been stationed and 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 focused on russia so there's a lot of it you know in alaska and that kind of stuff this could come up from across the southern border um you know where the sun doesn't shine kind of thing and um you had this guy who is the cybersecurity expert um, for the Pentagon quit because he says, basically, um, we've lost, um, to China in the AI department. Um, I still don't completely understand how a lot of the AI works or the quantum computing works or why it's the, it's the whole ball game, but all the people I know who know about this stuff say it kind of is. And, you know, the problem with China is that like, I, I am still of a school that now, people keep saying that the experiment with getting China richer and that leading to democracy has failed. And I still don't say that. I don't see it that way. I, I still see it as it hasn't worked yet. And um, that doesn't mean that we should, you know, just give it more time and let China do its thing or any of that kind of stuff. That's not my point. I think there are legitimate reasons to bring a lot of supply chain stuff home particularly when it comes to stuff like chips um i can get into a thing with scott lincecum about it i don't i i shouldn't say bring it all home i just mean get it out of china um i just don't think they're a reliable or safe trading partner for a lot of these kinds of things for a while um but i still do actually believe in this this general pattern which has borne itself out time and time again that once you get a certain level of wealth and particularly among a middle class um that will eventually yield um a um a fight for the rule of law and democracy it's taking longer and it looks like it's going to take much longer still for it to work in china but i i still believe that the, that possibility is still there i still think the chinese communist party is more brittle than we give it um credit for or, or we or than we tend to think you know one of the reasons why they're doing all of this you know uh panopticon social credit score um totalitarian data mining stuff is because they're scared right this, this is not a this is not something that that ruling parties do because they're confident about their future. It's something that they do 
because they're scared they might lose power. Um, and, I, and again, I'm not saying that this is the mindset of everybody in there, but it's, um, it, you know, if you had the full and complete support of the populace, you wouldn't need to do a lot of this stuff. Um, there was a fascinating piece. Oh, I can't remember the, the place. Was it Quillette? Not Quillette. Someplace like Quillette. Um, about basically the chief ideologist of the Chinese Communist Party and um and his concerns about the west and um god what was i'm not gonna find it my brain's just not working um but he was basically like the you know the the suslov suslov was the i believe suslov was the chief ideologist of the old soviet Politburo, and this guy um studied in the west used to be very pro-liberalization under deng xiaoping and then over time basically came to agree with me in the sense that um, building a strong, vibrant um, middle class uh, over time undermines social, you know, the social cohesion that you get from a totalitarian government. And, um, uh, and he thought this was bad. You know, he, he looks at America and says, America's, you know, look how decadent it is and self-hating it is and all that kind of stuff, which he's got a point there. Um, we don't want to do that. So we need to keep, you know, keep this kind of liberalization at bay and you can have a certain amount of economic liberalization, but you cannot have political liberalization. Um, and my argument is, is that economic liberalization over time yields political liberalization. And this is the, the you know, this was the argument of Seymour Martin Lipset and his modernization theory. Um, and this was the argument of uh, Karl Marx, right? You know, Karl Marx argued that you needed to have a bourgeois revolution before you could have a proletarian revolution. He was pretty much right about the bourgeois revolution part is that the way you get rid of feudalism, the way you get, a, you know, rid of the, um, ancien regime, uh, aristocratic order and monarchy and that kind of thing is you get a big enough middle class and a bourgeois and bourgeois. And I know I say bourgeois a lot on here. Um, it just means it's derived from basically the word burger, not like hamburger, but like um, the burgers of the, you know, of, of Dresden or whatever, you know, like uh, it basically, basically means city dweller. And, um, and, but more specifically, it means mildly affluent city dweller. And one of the reasons why you, why it took on that connotation is, is that, you know, cities in the old days, uh, and so, to some extent still today, not as much, I guess. Um, cities is where people would bring raw commodities and then uh, artisans, craftsmen, guilds, these kinds of people would turn them into um, finished goods, right? So you bring in your cattle and out come, you know, handbags and shoes and hamburgers and steaks. Um, you bring in your wheat, out comes bread and pasta. You bring in um, lumber, out come, you know, bring in trees, out comes lumber and everything else that they make with wood, right? Um, and these middlemen um, uh, were essential. And the middlemen, are, they were also the distribution hubs to send this stuff back out to other places for trade. And that's why cities got rich. Um, cities had the benefit of division of labor. They had large numbers of people. Um, the, 
one of my favorite phrases from medieval Europe um, is, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to mess this up, but I believe it is Stuttloft mach du frei, which is uh, city air makes you free. And um, it used to have actually a literal meaning, which was that if you were like a serf um, and you fled your traditional uh, home, you know, where you were by law, basically an indentured servant or quasi-slave, um, if you could make it to a city and you could be there for, I think often the, the term was a year and a day, you became a free citizen and you couldn't be expatriated, you know, if they didn't catch you. But there's a sort of a more poetic meaning to city air makes you free is because like cities are where people go to escape. Historically, it's where they go to escape their, the bonds of traditionalism and custom and expectations of their elders and their church or whatever. And try to sort of sculpt their own lives and make, you know, and become who they are or who they want to be. And, um, how did I get on this? Oh, I was trying to explain just bourgeois. So anyway, I still think that China could, um, become a liberal democracy someday, but my timeline for that is much longer than I would like. And in the process, a lot of bad things can happen. Um, and I, I'm more and more, I'm fearing that bad things will happen. Um, you know, part of the problem is that you know, China has a lot of excess men. Um, and wherever you have too many men, uh, there's a tendency towards violence. Um, you know, in the, one of the reasons why the wild west was so wild is that you had, um, too many men and not enough women. And one of the things that men do because men are idiots is they start performatively, uh, combating with other men, um, to impress females. But that kind of impulse also translates itself into politics. And you can find, you know, that, that the attraction of nationalism becomes much stronger in those kinds of societies because you have, um, you know, disgruntled young men who feel like the world is against them. I mean, this whole incel thing in the United States is sort of kind of proof of that. Um, and we know that when authoritarian regimes, um, are feel threatened internally, what they do is they find external foes to blame everything on. Middle East has been doing the, did this with Israel for decades. Russia does this on a constant basis. You know, they, they, you know, as Leon Aaron likes to say, you know, Russia thinks it's been at war with the West for 20 years now. I mean, they, that that's what their propaganda, that their news, that's what Putin, you know, Putin's whole pitch is that, you know, we could have better things, but the West is constantly trying to undermine us. And I am, I alone am strong enough to stand up to it. Um, this is, you know, why the Iranians talk about the great Satan and all that, um, go down a very long list. Um, and so China, in order to sort of keep people's minds off the fact that their economy is, 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 is starting to slow down or that people's, you know, social status anxiety is is not being satiated by capitalism because they can't get a wife or they can't leave their farms or whatever. 
creating a nationalist threat or a nationalist movement is very much in China's the G's in the Communist Party's interest. And I do wish, you know, like last night, I basically agreed with most of what Pompeo was saying last night in his, this interview on Special Report. But I wish conservatives would stop whenever they're talking about, you know, China or even North Korea. Stop talking about, oh, this is perfectly consistent with their Marxist-Leninist, you know, agenda. Or, there's, you know, you get to saying Marxist-Leninist or Marxist-Leninism and whatnot. There's, there's precious little to nothing with, it, with the exception of one party rule of China. There's nothing Marxist Leninist about China anymore. It's authoritarian. It's, it's neo-authoritarian. I mean, we come up with some label that's, that's accurate, but you know, it, it's economy does not look anything like Marxist Leninism. They don't talk about Marxist Leninism very much, except to the, the, the most ridiculous rubes. It's, you know, it's a Chinese thing now. And, you know, and, and North Korea, I've talked about this a bunch, has taken all the Marxism and Leninism verbiage out of their documents and their charter and constitution years ago. That place is essentially just a monarchy um, trying to get nuclear weapons. Um, so anyway, I, you know, I kind of think that the hypersonic missile thing combined with Taiwan should be viewed as at least somewhat like a kind of a Sputnik moment. Um, you know, I think we should be thinking really, really hard about um, what we're willing to do and what we're not willing to do to defend Taiwan, to stand up to China um, before it's too late. And I think the opportunities for really stupid decision-making all around are really, really strong. And I want to write about this Jen Psaki thing, but just to put a pin in it, um, like Jen Psaki, when confronted with this news about the hyper, when asked about this thing with the hypersonic missile and Taiwan and their arms build up in China and whatever, she says, we, you know, we welcome competition, but we don't want it to turn into conflict. And we talked about this a bit on the dispatch podcast, but this, this is like incredibly stupid. Um, just on the merits. I mean, it just, it just is powerfully, palpably stupid. Um, cause, and it's completely contradictory to everything, particularly Democrats have said for the last 40 years or so, maybe since JFK, um, in the sense that, you know, certainly since the eighties, the there's a big swath and Obama was part of it, right? You know, starting with like the sane freeze movement. Um, there's always been a very strong element on the foreign policy left and, and, and among foreign policy, just conventional liberals too, that arms races are really what are, are like the source of so many of our problems and that they're, they're dangerous. They are dangerous, right? Um, but they also sometimes are good. I think, I think it was Churchill. No, it wasn't Churchill. Gosh, there was somebody, somebody famous said, um, uh, that we got into world war one because of an arms race and we got into world war two because we didn't have an arms race. You know, sometimes building up weapons 
is a good thing. And like, so Reagan's military buildup made the world safer, not less safe. Um, and you know, when we are, when, when it is clear that the United States is the dominant and unmatchable superpower, military superpower on the planet, and that we are willing to demonstrate that if called upon, um, it puts a wet blanket on a lot of bad ac- actors and, you know, and a lot of mischief. But when we signal that either we do not have the capability or we are not u- willing to use the capability, that's when bad things happen. It's the same logic of like friggin' every single like prison movie and mobster movie since the dawn of time. It's like if, if people suspect weakness, they start pressing their advantages. If they think, you know, uh, you don't have game anymore, uh, they try to take your territory. I mean, this is like half, you know, like the, the drug dealers in the wire so completely understand this logic better than an enormous number of, um, you know, uh, foreign policy intellectuals. And, um, so anyway, but you know, the idea that you would say in response to the Chinese making a massive leap forward, apparently much further along than we are in developing a hypersonic missile that will one day be able to carry a thermonuclear warhead aimed at the United States of America, which would in effect make it very difficult for us to do anything about Taiwan or any place else that China's interested in dominating um, without risking, you know, a nuclear confrontation. The idea that a liberal Democrat speaking for a liberal Democrat administration would say, we welcome the competition is just mind-bogglingly dumb. It's weird. I mean, I, I like I, I'm a free market guy, and you know, and 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 if if China had the the politics and the political culture of Hong Kong, let's just say it was like Hong Kong. I was going to say like you know, you know, like the UK or or Mexico or something, but you know, Hong Kong is even better. I you know. I'd be fine with as much competition on a bunch of things um, with them because I don't think that like trading with China makes, you know, trading with a peaceful and democratic China would be only to the plus side for the United States of America. I do not buy any of the Trumpian protectionist arguments about how trade makes us poor or any of that kind of stuff, but trading with China when it's, you know, uh, aiding and abetting an authoritarian regime with hegemonic ambitions that's a different story. Nonetheless, I could, to- I could still totally understand saying we welcome competition when it came to something like flat screen TVs or jetpacks, um, you know, or sitcoms or movies or whatever. But the idea that we welcome competition in a nuclear arms race is weird. It's just weird. And I haven't seen her clean this thing up very well yet either, which is to me weirder still. Um, and it's particularly weird when we're not talking about actually joining in the competition in a serious way and throwing a lot of money at building up our own capacities in this regard. Um, you know, I mean, again, I I don't like the concept of Sputnik moments generally. I hated when Obama talked about it because basically it was just a stand in for moral equivalent to war stuff. And, you know, and in particular, um, I mean, 
I can't hold this against Obama personally since he wasn't alive or at least he wasn't, you know, like politically a real person yet. But um, a lot of the people who love to talk about Sputnik moments um, are the very people who probably who who their ideological stripe had problems with the actual Sputnik moment. Um, you know, it's this, this, this constant tendency to love the moral equivalent of war when it's for your ends. Um, but not liking actual, you know, uh, military strategic competition with when it's actually called for. Um, and don't, don't get me started on the moral equivalent of war thing. I should probably do a whole like interstitial or, you know, supplemental thing on the moral equivalent of war. Cause and there's very few sort of eggheadish things I have read and written about more. Um, Anyway, I can, I apologize if I seem like I'm just sort of phoning it in today. I'm not phoning it in. I'm just, I'm just distracted and the dog thing really put me in a foul mood. What put me in a great mood though, was visiting, um, my daughter out in California. Um, it was really just a, a great time. I was very worried. Now, so my daughter and I have this thing about amusement parks. We do roller coasters together in part because my wife will not do them <laughs> and, um, so we've been doing that since she was a little girl and it's a little weird, you know, I still feel like it was only a year or two that we had to worry about whether or not she was tall enough for certain rides. But of course that was a long time ago. Um, but so partly on the advice of Charlie Cook, uh, British Charlie Cook, not, not cephalologist Charlie Cook. Um, we opted to go to uh, the six flags in Valencia, the magic mountain and not Disneyland. Um, and that was also in part because I looked, you couldn't get into any of the Disneyland hotels except for, I, I kid you not. Um, the, the main hotel in Disneyland and I was booking like trying to book like three weeks out. The only rooms left were these suites that started at like $13,000 a night. And, um, you know, look, I mean, I, uh, I love Harry shave, but those ads do not <laughs> provide that kind of money. So, you know, I didn't want to do that. And also like, but as Charlie pointed out, if you're, if you're in it for the rides rather than sort of the nostalgia and the Americana stuff, then six flags just crushes Disneyland. Um, which I take him at his word at in part, cause I haven't been to Disneyland in 40 years or something. Um, but also because like Disney world, you know, the rides themselves aren't as good as like some other amusement parks, but also I take Charlie's word for it because Charlie is an insane roller coaster nerd. Um, like he can tell you the names of the firms that built certain roller coasters and when they built them and why they built them the certain way and all this kind of stuff. And he is, um, you know, he is, he's an obsessive about it. It's really kind of funny. And, um, so we went to, uh, magic mountain and, um, I was really worried. I'm having real bad back issues. I got to get some physical therapy. Pretty sure it's just straight up sciatica or some, you know, whatever they call it these days. Um, and, um, I was really worried that, you know, all these roller coasters were going to like 
mess up my back, something vicious. But it turned out, I don't know if it was the compression or whatever, but it worked out fine and it, it wasn't really a problem. Um, but man, uh, some of those roller coasters are amazing. Um, the single best one, maybe the best roller coaster I've ever been on with the exception maybe of like the Cyclone for nostalgia's sake, is this one, I think it's called Twisted Colossus. And, um, which claims to marry sort of the best parts of wood roller coasters with steel roller coasters. Um, and there's something about the free fall on this thing that even though it's not like legitimately a free fall ride the way, you know, some rides are, it's just, it is just un, it's just unbelievable and just a crazy, crazy roller coaster. Um, and, uh, um, but anyway, so we had a, we had a lovely time stayed in the hotel on sunset Boulevard, which was kind of kitschy and weird. Um, you know, the, and, um, I had long talks with my kid, which was wonderful. And, you know, she, and it's interesting, I'm hearing this from other friends who have kids who are starting, who are starting college this year and, you know, have daughters in particular. And I, I, going to stay so far from betraying any of the confidences that my daughter and I have about talking about particularly her social life. But it's, it's interesting. There's a common refrain about how, first of all, it's a little tougher for girls to find their place than it is for boys. Cause you know, give them a red solo cup full of beer and, and they're off to the races. But, um, it does seem, you know, it's, it's, it does seem like the, the pandemic stuff has had an effect that there are just a lot of kids who are having are struggling to sort of navigate social waters and in in a little bit of normalcy and um i'm kind of proud of how well you know my kids doing with all of that um but it was just really interesting to to get a sense like it's just some of the stuff particularly men are willing to admit to and say and do are so alien to me in terms of, you know, the way I grew up. And, and, you know, I kept telling my daughter, I was like, you know, look, I went to an all women's college. You know, it's not like I went to, you know, Texas A&M and was a frat bro or something, but even so like the sort of sensitivity, I don't want to say snowflakiness, but you know, the sort of coddling of the American mind stuff I think is real. And I think that the, pandemic and made it even more acute in some ways. Um, but I hear different reports from different people, you know, and, um, but you know, this sort of this thing that parents do, I'm sure some of you are familiar with it when your first kid or only kid goes to college, you start comparing notes with other people. And I just keep hearing sort of similar stories from people. Um, anyway, I am, going to write a little bit about that Jen Psaki thing, I think in the G file, because it ties into this other thing I want to write about, which is that MIT story. Um, um, what else was I going to tell you people about? Oh, I, I mentioned the other day, this, this new community based thingamabob, whatchamacallit, um, that we're developing. Um, we'll, we'll probably put something in the Wednesday G file next week because the beta testing thing to the extent we're going to do it that way is going to be um uh 
for obviously for paid members only, you know, because the actual thing will be for paid members only as well. Um, we think we have a real strategic advantage with how good, for the most part, our um, comment section is and our comment sections are, if that's the better grammar. Um, I talk goodly. Um, and we want to give a even richer, more robust experience. And, and some of the stuff uh, that this thing can do when we're, we're fully staffed and built up is really cool. Like I can just simply like with a button as an administrator, uh, launch a video and say, like I, like I could send out the G file and then say, you know, 10 minutes in 10 minutes from now, you know, I'm going to pop on this in the comment section in video, ask me anything kind of thing. I mean, it's like really cool stuff. And, um, and there's one button that opens a silo in Nebraska and launches an intercontinental ballistic missile, which I'm really hoping to use at one point. Uh, but no, it's, it's going to be cool. And, you know, um, we just got one step at a time kind of thing. Um, and a bunch of people have asked me if Charlie Cook come back on so we can talk about this third party stuff. Charlie and I have been texting throughout this whole thing about all sorts of things, including this third party stuff. Um, and as I said, before I had Michael Brendan Doherty on, um, the original plan was to have Charlie on, but Charlie couldn't do it. And so we got an Irishman to do it. Um, I thought some people were a little too uncharitable towards Michael. Um, but you know, it was in the comments and the feedback I got, but, um, I thought the end of that conversation was actually really, really interesting. And the, um, but the problem was, is you just, for whatever reason, didn't want to engage on the third party stuff very much. Um, but Charlie does Charlie's chomping at the bit to explain to me why I'm wrong. Um, which I think is fine. Um, and I can talk to him about roller coaster stuff too. So we're going to figure out how to get him on. If not this coming week, then certainly soon thereafter. Um, next week, uh, I got Paul Bloom coming on. I'm very excited about this. He's my, one of my two favorite, um, uh, psychologist eggheads. Um, the other one being Jonathan Haidt. Um, and, uh, I've learned a lot from Bloom. He's got a new book out. I'm going to spend the weekend reading it and, um, really looking forward to that. Um, I highly recommend his, his, his other books. Um, but we'll talk about more about that next week. And, uh, I'm going to try to see Dune this weekend. And, um, that's all I got, I guess. So I'll see you next time.